Yes, we do have our guest back in the studio. It's good to see you, Trevor. Trevor Tuff, Outback Graves. And you do have a website, uh, outbackgraves.org.au. No, not .au, just .org. .org. <laughs> I like to add on. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, but well. I'll just, cross, I'll just cross that out, Trev, okay? Um, now, just very quickly, you started with this uh, Outback Graves. How long now? Just to uh, recap on end this. End of 2014, myself and Alex Aitken, my old school friend, got together and we decided we'd do it, but we didn't really start till 2015 but you had an interest in the history of australia or yes. wa yeah and you've spread across australia haven't you we have we've got uh, people working on, on our project in south australia and queensland and we oh. open in the act all that high country uh, you won't be going mountains over, you wouldn't be going over there no, would you just no, the people got, over there but you'd give them a few guidelines wouldn't you oh yes we set them up that completely. is absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful what a tribute and dedication to yes. people that came to this country it's become a national project now yes Oh, you're big, aren't you? They're good on you. Okay, update. Righto, we've done the update. Yep. We've talked about all that stuff. So uh, tell you a little bit about Menzies. And uh, it's a pretty sleepy town now, but in 1895 it was very busy with gold mining. And uh, 1895 saw the outbreak of typhoid in the gold fields and poor sanitation, which was mostly non-existent, and the lack of water to spare for personal washing caused the disease to sweep through the communities. There was no available uh, effective treatment against bacterial infections in those days, so that meant that even young and robust people who caught the disease seldom recovered. Authorities did their best and established burning pits where all the personal effects of the deceased were destroyed. But our work shows that between May 1895 and December 1897, out of the first 87 people to be buried at Menzies, 61 of them died of typhoid. That's 70%. It covered the full spectrum of ages, from babies of four months old through to adults of all ages and professions. Many were in their 20s, strong and young, but unable to withstand the ravages of typhoid. There were miners, prospectors, clerks, police constables, auctioneers, housewives, carriers and a newsagent. It went through the whole community. But their stories can now be told on our website as they deserve to be. Now Menzies is quite a big challenge for us. During the 1960s when the town was dwindling, the Shire at the time had the cemetery officially closed and for decades it was neglected by past councils, which sounds unbelievable today. The current council, however, is endeavouring to have it reopened as there are some local folk in recent times who wish to be buried there. And we're very pleased that they are backing us absolutely to recover what information we can for them. Many graves, in fact hundreds, there are unmarked and all signs of the existence has been washed or blown away. Many of the old headstones are breaking up and we'll be doing some repairs and strengthening of those on our next trip. So there's still a few years of effort left there for our team in Menzies alone. Mm, incredible. I've been there too. It is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Typhoid, boy, lucky we're right to okay today. Yes. Um, Geraldine Mine. I've, yeah, Geraldine Mine's an interesting one. I've previously told you of the story there, uh, which with the mine was established by a ticket of leave man near Northampton back in the late 1860s. And they were mining Galena, which is lead, and the shaft of the mine is situated right in the bed of the Murchison River. David Wallace, aged 31, was working in that mine on the 22nd of March 1871 
when the Murchison River came down suddenly without any warning whatsoever. The shaft of the Geraldine mine was quickly flooded. Four men were underground at the time, three of whom, with water pouring in on them, got to the surface and were rescued. The fourth was drowned. A report of the time says, one poor fellow lost his life. Owing to the suddenness and magnitude of the flood, David Wallace was unable to escape. He was a right good fellow. Goodness, they didn't realise that that river was, you know, going to be it doing must something have like that. upstream oh, a long Of course, way, yeah. you're right, yeah. And Laverton? Well, sometimes our pioneers were running away from families and the law or debt, and they assumed alias names or avoided giving any identification at all. And one such fellow died of hunger and thirst near Laverton in late January 1908. The coronial inquiry tells us that he was aged about 45 years, he had a beard which was sandy in colour, about 5 foot 4 inches and of slim build. Apparently, if asked his name, he'd say, just call me Bill. <laughs> Something <laughs> to hide. <laughs> he was hiding. What about Giuseppe? Giuseppe Sawyer is buried also at Laverton and he was a minor trucker aged 39 and he was one of many Italians who came to work in the gold mines. His wife's name was Domenica and he was the son of Antonio Sawyer, a farmer. Giuseppe was killed in a fall of earth on the 17th of August 1909. He'd only started work there the previous day. Alfonso Verasti, I can see the Italian. Well, lots influence. of Italians. Yeah. He was a minor age, only 21, and he died of hemorrhage and shock due to being stabbed in the side on the 19th of August 1909. The Italian man who killed Ferasti and wounded another Italian was put on trial and sentenced to five years for manslaughter. Mm, terrible. Daphne Ruby McLennan. Yeah, she was only four months old when she died of meningitis on the 11th of July 1911. She was the daughter of Ruby and Herbert McLennan, a school teacher who was later killed in World War One. So poor Ruby. Oh dear. Uh, she. Uh, had a hard time. Yeah, a lot of babies would have died without medical help. And then a husband got killed in World War One. Oh, gosh. Shortly after. Yeah, we think we're bad off. Albert Desmond Archer. Yeah, he was only 18 and he was a fitter and turner's apprentice and the son of Ethel and Francis Archer, who was a blacksmith. His accidental death was caused on the 7th of November 1917 through the bursting of an emery wheel at the Lansfield gold mine. And Pietro Tognolini... Another Italian fellow, yeah. aged 32, he died on the 4th of May 1935 from a fractured skull, the result of a motor accident on the Leonora de Gaulia Road. You've so got so much information about these people. It's, it's incredible. The stories are great, aren't they? Giovanni Tagliaferri. Right, this Tagliaferri family, this is a whole story. And Giovanni was another miner. He was aged 29 when he died on the 12th of November 1936, two days after he was injured in a jelly night explosion on the 28th level of the Sons of Gwalia gold mine. Sons of Gwalia killed, we must have done 50 or 60 plus. Right, that many. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. And as usual, no blame or consequence was reached uh, for the event. The verdict of the coroner was that it is not known how the explosion occurred, and that was the end of that. But I have a friend called Giulio Tagliaferri who in the 1940s and 50s grew up at Gorlia at the Sons of Gorlia gold mine where his father worked and that's right on the edge of the town of Leonora. 
He tells me that everyone from the Italian town of Pezzolo has Tagliaferri as a surname. <laughs> so his mother's maiden name was Tagliaferri and she married a Tagliaferri. <laughs> Confusing. Taglia in Italian apparently means to cut and ferry means iron, so they were iron cutters. Oh, okay. And Pozzolo, the town, is on the border of Switzerland and Italy and two kilometres further up the hill is another mining town called Manina and their people are also all Taglia fairies, meaning <laughs> iron cutters. <laughs> so each time I make a plaque for that name, I let Giulio know and often he knows the family even though they're not related. So here's another one. Albert Tagliaferri, a pensioner aged 42, died in Leonora from diabetes and gangrene on the 29th of May 1941. There was no effective treatment for diabetes in those days and he was the son of Margarita and Battista Tagliaferri, a farmer. Now my friend Giulio tells me that Battista was also known as Peg Leg Joe <laughs> because prior to becoming a farmer, he lost a leg in a mining accident Guess where? At the Sons of Gorlea Gold Mine. Yes, I think I went there where they have all yes. the deserted huts and everything. That's right, yeah. And the it's big really old, interesting. Beautiful big home which he became the President of the United States. Keep it um, Is that the same? Yes. Yes. Isn't it awful we can't remember? The President. Yes, and, yes, president. and he was there and this big yes. home is now used for it's functions. It's a museum and functions. Yes. Yeah. And anyway, you can stay there. Yeah. That was really interesting. Hoover. Hoover, Hoover, thank you for that. Hoover House. And all these homes that people lived in that people can now go and have a look inside, the little yes. shanties. and we're working with the Shire to do little uh, plaques which will tell the story of each of the families. That'll be interesting. Yeah, it's really Where should go into there? Okay, now the Abbots. Right, the Abbott's mining area is on a station called Euthapena, which is near Mekathara, and Abdul Aziz died following the amputation of his leg on the 29th of April 1900. And the story goes that the camel driver Abdul Aziz, who was seriously hurt by a camel a fortnight ago, underwent amputation of the limb at his own request. The operation was skillfully performed by Dr Belgrave, and the patient seemed at first to be progressive favourably. But about an hour after the operation, he seized Mr Boston's hand, expressing signs of gratitude for the attention shown by him, and a few seconds later, he died. The doctor stated the cause of death was surgical shock, the patient's extreme susceptibility to the influence of chloroform being a powerful contributing factor. The remains of the unfortunate man were interred at the Abbott's Cemetery, the mortuary arrangements being in the hands of Mr G.F. Carlton. Can you imagine an amputation in those days? Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> don't want to. Oh, much, no, uh, I don't either. What an incredible thing. Yeah. Alice Glendinning. She was known as the Lady Prospector, having followed her husband around prospecting in the northern goldfields, and she suffered a long, debilitating internal illness, likely cancer, which caused her to waste away and suffer much pain. She passed away at her residence at the Lancefield Gold Mine on the 21st of May 1908, aged only 47. Well, and she was amazing, man, to, a woman to be travelling with her husband. Yeah, yeah, and we'll mark her grave at okay. later next trip. And graves of a couple of other ladies will mark at Laverton are those of Alice Snowden, a single age, a single lady age, lady age forty four, who died of cancer and consumption, which is TB, on the fourth of November nineteen hundred and nine, and only six months later, on the eighteenth of May nineteen ten, her sister Eliza Corey, the wife of Richard John Corey, died age forty one of a brain tumour. 
they're buried together at Laverton cemeteries and we'll be marking their graves. That's good. And the two um, of her relatives at Kew. Yes, we had a lady uh, ask us to mark the graves of two of her relatives at Kew and uh, they were Jam- Eric James McLernan was an unmarried miner aged only 23 who died in an explosion at Kew. And Mr McLernan was instantly killed by the explosion of several plugs of fracture soon after he was lowered into a well near the mine for the purpose of laying the charges to deepen the well. There were extensive injuries to his legs and the lower part of his trunk which would quickly cause death through shock and haemorrhage. In these areas though, um, Trevor, there wouldn't have been immediate medical help. No. How would they have... You can't ring an ambulance. They just suffered. They just suffered, and how would some of them did have medical attention? Some did. Yes. So were their doctors not far away sometimes? Uh, a lot of the mine sites, the bigger mine sites, had and the small towns often had a little hospital. Yeah. They wouldn't have had what we have today. That's no. for sure. Okay. The second grave. Uh, yeah, that's of uh, a fellow called John Toner, who was a prospector, aged about fifty, and his wife name wife's name was Catherine, and he died of thirst and exposure four miles east of Jack's Well in the Kew district. It was the height of summer and, as you can imagine, very hot. He was in the employ of Mr Woodcock, a woodcutter, and he'd been missing from about the 6th of January 1903, but it was March before any mention was made of his disappearance. So it seems to me Catherine <laughs> wasn't yes. all that worried about him. Sounds terrible. From indications around the corpse, it was believed that thirst was the cause of death. Oh, dear. His boots were on, his trousers were pulled down over them, and his hands were apparently resignedly oh. laid across his chest. He so just, he lay, just down. lay down and quit. Yeah. Well, now, the last story for today. Yeah, it's a good one. About uh, two men involved were uh, Lewis Scotty Morrison, a miner aged 30, who's buried on Mount Florence Station. And the other man was a man called uh, Joseph Travis, and here's their story. At the Tableland races, Police Constable Murray arrested two disorderly characters named Joseph Travis and Lewis Morrison and chained them up to a tree surrounded by dry spinifex. Murray searched them for matches owing to their threats to fire the grass and then he retired. Soon after, however, the grass ignited and before the prisoners could be liberated, they were both so severely burnt that they died within a few days. The coroner exonerated Constable Murray from all blame. Lewis Morris- Morrison died the night of the sad occurrence. Travis lingered on until Friday when he also succumbed to the dreadful burning he had received on the previous Wednesday. Before expiring, Travis confessed to firing the thick spinifex. We surrounded them and the tree to which they were chained. His objective was to get free. A coroner's inquest he- held before Mrs. S.L. Burgess, J.P., and D.K. McRae, J.B., J.P., and a jury found that the deceased men came to their death through the act of one of them setting fire to the spinifex. Trying to work out how he thought he'd become free if the spinifex caught fire. I guess he thought they would be able to let him go before they got badly burnt, yeah. But obviously he had matches. Must have. And the policeman mm. had searched them for that. Mm. Oh, my goodness, I'm glad we're here. Some stories, Some stories. <laughs> it must be going round and round in your head. But the people that uh, research these intricate stories, really, yes. and uh, this is what I can't work out, how you get the intricate 
stories of their lives and what they actually have done and how they passed away. And yeah, a lot of them are from the old newspaper reports. Ah, oh, that's and, what I was and wondering. And coroner's reports, yeah. Okay, so that people were being reported on their lifestyles or what they were doing well, way back Well, every then. little community had community had a local news oh okay news that's what paper. it's about yeah that is fascinating now on your website do you have all this information uh some of these haven't been put up yet because we haven't marked them yet but right. there's uh 2700 <laughs> stories up that's there you reading. can have a look at that's good reading <laughs> well if you want to know more about wa history that's the way to go isn't it it's good and it's outbackgraves.org and uh we'll see you again before you go away again i will Thank you, Trevor. Thanks, Absolutely Dennis. fabulous stories. Trevor Tuff joining us from Outback Graves. Back to the radio.